Hello and welcome to Rugby World Magazine's One Game at a Time. In this episode, we speak to one of international rugby's most prolific wingers. Catherine Merchant played 58 times for the Red Roses over a nine-year international career, scoring 44 tries. She retired just after the 2014 Women's World Cup, where England had, after so many runners-up medals, finally lifted the trophy. We talk about the semi-final against Ireland from that tournament, and we discuss wing play, footwork, handoffs, singing the national anthem, and what she takes away from an incredible career. Cat was wonderful to talk to, and it was plain to see the passion still burning within her and the effect the game of rugby has had on her whole life. This is One Game at a Time. Catherine Merchant, how are you? Are you well? I'm good, thank you. Yes, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, I'm speaking to a lot of players uh, during this uh, very unusual, unprecedented lockdown period. A lot of them talking about how they're coping. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. Have you learned something new about yourself during this lockdown? Yeah, I think so. Because um, I'm always someone that's kind of out and busy and kind of non-stop, whereas actually having to stay in is quite a different skill, I think. So um, I started doing a lot of yoga and testing myself in different ways and sticking to that style of training instead of like a lot of the high-intensity stuff. And um, I'm not very technical at all. And uh, I managed to run boot camps online. Uh, which is a whole thing like Zoom for the first time ever and things like that. So I think actually, yeah, possibly I can do some of the technical things possibly I wouldn't have thought I could have done before. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear everyone is learning something because it is it is a little bit, you know, you've got to take the positives, haven't you? I have to. And I think that's the only way of surviving it is going, right, what are the jobs I've been putting off for months and years? Right, I'll get those done because I can't go out and I've really tried to keep that mindset. Difficult, obviously, on some days. Other days, it's easier to think like that. Other days when you're not as motivated. But generally, on the whole, I've been pretty, like, sorting rubbish, horrible jobs that have now ticked off and done. These are the rules of this podcast. One player, one game. But I have a feeling we might be slightly bending the rules a little bit later. Uh, We're going to go back to the Women's Rugby World Cup of 2014 in France. When I say that phrase, the Women's Rugby World Cup of 2014, 2014 in France is there a particular image in your mind can you describe it for us um I think just no probably not just one image to be honest it just brings up just a lot of emotions and I think actually maybe maybe just kind of running out as a team together and just that kind of feeling um we could do it but yeah an actual image quite difficult to to kind of pinpoint, I think. Over a nine-year period, you represented your country 58 times, I think, scoring 44 tries. You were regarded as one of the finest finishers of your generation. I'm going to start by exploring the idea of scoring with a winger. Every time you took the field, did you feel extra pressure to score a try? And in a sense, is that an unfair way to judge a winger? Uh, yeah, it can be. I mean, because um, uh, on my first cap, going back a few years now, my first cap, my first touch of the ball, I scored a try. Um, and then it happened for a couple of caps after it. So I started to get a nickname, one touch. And it actually became a bit of a pressure. The first time I touched the ball, I was like, well, I have to score because otherwise I'm rubbish. And like, <laughs> so it did become quite a thing. But um, I think it depends on opportunities because I've played in games where, you know, I've been handed the try. Someone's almost over the line, they passed to you, you score. And you kind of know that that's a team one, you've contributed and you know as a winger that it's kind of, yes, it gets put down to you, but it's a team one really and any of the wingers would have scored it. 
But then there are other ones where, you know, you see wingers score outstanding tries and you watch them and you're just like, wow, that, that is really on them. And if you put a different player in there, possibly they might not have finished. And I think that's the art of finishing is when you pass the ball out to that winger, you know they're going to do their job. They're on there for one thing and that's to get the ball over. So I didn't feel a pressure to score other than joking aside for the uh, first few, but I wanted to score and that was my job and I needed to do it for the team. We're going to watch you play. How, how self-critical were you as a player? Did you look, like to watch yourself back? Um, I did in terms of if there's another game coming up for analysis to kind of look and see where I could improve. Um, quite critical, but I think most players are. I think you could have near a perfect game and you'll focus on the mistake you made. Uh, but that's what, you, you know, if, you, if you're wanting to improve, is kind of what you have to do. I mean, that said, I did used to love the highlights clips. Where if you, you know, if you make it in there on a, on a real, like, scoring a try or something, it's, it's good to watch. Um, but yeah, it's a weird one watching yourself. Don't do it a lot. Do you ever used to say positive things to yourself as a player to try and keep yourself positive? And I suppose the flip side is, what, what were the development things that you used to try and have conversations with yourself about? And obviously it would have changed throughout your career. Sometimes I'd look at it and so at first I didn't have much footwork as a winger. I like literally when I burst onto the scene, I think because when I used to play, I just like, it probably sounds like the arrogant, but was quick enough to just run around. Uh, and then obviously the higher level you play, you're not quick enough to just do that anymore. So you developed a lot of footwork. So then when I'd see that and um, I'd watch a clip of it and then I'd, if I saw the winger's hips turn and then I go round and things like that, that would be a positive thing. And I'd look at it in a way of, oh, I've obviously improved there and, and learned that. Uh, handoffs as well. I love a handoff. So <laughs> we might see one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I could watch. If I, um, there's one uh, game against France. And this girl off and she literally flies and hits the floor, like horizontal hits the floor. And so I can watch that all day. But, um, but yeah, it's staying positive and being, I think when you're watching something, you're not getting down on yourself. You're just going, okay, I could have done that better. Or uh, there's another option there if I'd have given it earlier or kind of like that. So I'd never watch it and go, oh, I'm so bad. Or, oh, I wouldn't do it negatively. I'd just do it in a way of, okay, if I was to repeat it, would I do something differently? If I would, then what would it be as the next option? We're going to look at one particular match, the semi-final versus Ireland from the 2014 tournament. But I think we need to perhaps share some narrative here. England women's rugby, the, the Red Roses, have built quite a legacy over the years. To date, as we sit here today, uh, there have been eight women's rugby World Cup finals and England have been involved in seven of them. Their record is, is superb. But in 2002... 2006, 2010, three successive World Cup tournaments, they were beaten in the final by New Zealand. And in 2010, they lost the final in their own backyard, a heartbreaking 13-10 loss at Twickenham. Kat, can you try and put into words what feeling all of those consecutive silver medals had created in England for the 2014 tournament? I think it just puts a little bit of doubt into your mind because it's that kind of, oh, here we go again. And um, I remember in 2010, I remember that game, uh, they kicked off and we dropped the first kickoff. And I just think that made everybody go, oh no, here we go. And, I, and, and I, there's no point dwelling on things, but I just wonder if that first kickoff is caught, is it suddenly a different, right, we're in some, we're positive, we're, and, you know, for it to be, it was heartbreaking. 
and especially for some of the girls that have been involved in it uh, in the previous World Cups as well, I think. But, I mean, there was a feeling of no fear for some of us because obviously we'd be, in 2009, um, we'd beaten them 3-0, I think, in the, in the Test Series or 2-1 or something. Like we'd beaten them uh, at Twickenham. So there was a feeling of confidence it was doable. But I just think New Zealand are very good at turning up at finals and they're very good at their homework. They get beaten, they'll go away and they like learn and they're so, they're so credit to them. Yeah, I remember being a lot more nervous in 2010 than I was in 2014. For those of you uh, who don't know, uh, the Women's World Cup operates at a 12-team process, three-group structure. Uh, after the group stages, the teams are sectioned off into, uh, into groups of four, different groups of four, the top four going into a semi-final and a final process. Obviously, uh, the mathematicians amongst you will have already worked out of those three groups, two teams from one group will always progress. Um, uh, in the group stages, an opportunity presented itself in the shape of Ireland beating New Zealand. Do you remember watching that game as a group? Yes, yeah, we did. So we'd, we'd just finished our game, I think. So we'd done our kind of recovery and then we'd come back to the hotel. Um, we, we watched the first half of it. That was it. We watched the first half of it there live. Then we had to go back. So we got back into the hotel and we had it up on the big screen and we were all watching well, shakes and uh, things like that, recovery-wise. And we were just like, oh my God, like Ireland are going to win. Like, brilliant, like excellent. And then towards the end, we were like, ah, this means we'll play New Zealand in the semi. <laughs> like, so we were just like, right, cool. Like, and, and actually it was a great, we'll knock them out and then they didn't even make the finals. So, but it's all these things kind of going through uh, your head. And so yeah, you're just rooting for Ireland just because it was nice. It was, it was weird watching New Zealand and how they played because I've never seen them play like it. They just looked like, um, I remember Ireland had a line out and New Zealand were just talking to each other. They weren't even set. And I just think they just weren't, they just weren't switched on. I think they just almost took that game for granted and then obviously got caught out by it and Ireland had the game of their life. That, uh, it was Ireland's final. Um, they, they put everything into it and they played really, really well. But yeah, just watching it, we were all just like, oh my God, like a collective feeling of Ireland have just beaten New Zealand. Like, so big, yeah, big things. I've never done it before. So uh, yeah, it's a strange one, but exciting feel. England's final group game was against a really good Canada side. Um, a win and you were through, a loss and you dropped into the second tier, but a draw meant that both sides would go through and New Zealand would not be able to progress. Had you done any maths before the game or were you just focused on winning? No, just focused on winning. Because um, I guess you could say that we were in a similar position to New Zealand in terms of maybe we didn't take Canada as uh, seriously as we should have. I mean, but you look back at those moments and so there was one where early on I go over the line to jump on, on the ball and it's deemed that I didn't score it. But, you know, had I scored that, we win. And like, there's so many moments in the game. I think there was one where there was an intercept where if Mandy, the Canadian girl, had caught it, she'd have scored, we'd have lost. So it was just so down to, like... Because people... Uh, sometimes even after, like, oh, draw, convenient. And you're like, there was nothing convenient about that. We might have been knocked out completely. Because I think when the final whistle went, we, we were all just looking at each other, like, did we win? Did we lose? Like, it was, it was so close and just so tense. But, it, uh, yeah, just a surreal feeling. Because no, nobody's happy with a draw, generally a draw. You just, if you ask any player after a draw, do you want to play 20 more minutes? I reckon everyone would say yes, uh, just because it just feels so flat. Um, so I think you sort of think about it, and then afterwards you're like, 
did we not New Zealand out? And you're just like, actually, I don't know. It's probably not. It's probably this and that. So you don't like really think about it. And it was only afterwards that we realised it had happened. And we were just like, oh, wow. But in a weird way, it was great. Shout out to New Zealand. But in a weird way, I kind of wanted to face them as well to put to bed some of the demons um, from, you know, from the previous World Cup and, and everything. So, yeah, mixed emotions, I'd say, about that. But the semi-final was set up. England would play Ireland. Can we talk about the build-up to this game? I mean, New Zealand, as you mentioned, they were out of the equation. They had held a seeming Indian sign over the Red Roses. But this Ireland side had beaten them. And, they, and they'd completed the, the, the Grand Slam earlier that year. This was as good as Ireland had ever been. What were the thoughts in the England camp leading up to this game? There was actually a lot of this is where I think the people shouldn't um, they should watch what they say to the media because uh, one of the Irish girls I can't even remember which one had said, "Our oh, England is the best team we could possibly face because we know we can beat them." She said something like that. Oh, we're buzzing to get England, and I, we put it up on our wall, and we're like, "That's how little they think of us. They think they're going to walk over us." And it honestly, for me, and I know a couple of the other girls just set fire within me that I was like, there is no way you could like. So uh, actually, it had probably the opposite effect of what I wanted to because it motivated us. And uh, yeah, there was a lot, you know, every game we went out to afterwards, like the New Zealand fans were booing us, the French fans were booing us. And actually, that's an image that I think about actually with the World Cup walking out and having nearly a full stadium booing you. Like, <laughs> so just don't. Born England there. Once New Zealand were knocked out, they they wanted they didn't, definitely didn't want to see us uh, up there. Um, but yeah, just kind of yeah, surreal, surreal. I think. But um, yeah, I, I mean, we played Ireland a lot of times, and they were on good form. And I think we were just new one game at a time, and we had a team meeting about it. And we were like, we cannot think about the final because if we think about the final, suddenly we're not in it because we've lost in, in a semi. So. We were very motivated. We had a group meeting and I remember we never actually spoke about winning. We just spoke about performance and we spoke about something um, about doing the simple things right. Against Canada, we were messy. Uh, we didn't look like us. It was a very unstructured performance. And so we just uh, spoke about, well, what do you do well? What do you do? What do you bring? Uh, so my thing that I wrote down was score. I was like, I'm going to score a try because that's what I need to do and that's what's going to help the team and everybody else might put our one forward or, or, you know, everyone had their little goals that collectively meant we would have uh, a much more cohesive performance and that meeting was quite a powerful one and actually it was just, we can do this. Let's, uh, let's have a look at the teams uh, and, uh, and, and just discuss them. The Ireland team was uh, as follows. I'll read it out for those people listening in. Uh, Neve Briggs at uh, fullback, Ashley Baxter on the right wing, Lynn Cantwell and Grace Davitt in the centre, Alison Miller on the left wing, Nora Stapleton and Tanya Rossa were Ireland at half, were uh, playing for Ireland at half back. Uh, the front row and captain Fiona Coughlin, Julian uh, Burke and Ailish uh, Egan at three, Sophie Spence, uh, Mary Louise Riley uh, operated in the second row. And a back row for Ireland, Paula Fitzpatrick, Claire Malloy and Heather O'Brien at eight. Um, this was exactly the same side that had beaten New Zealand. And 11 of this 15 had started the Grand Slam season. This was a team that knew each other very well. Oh, yeah, they were excellent at working together. I mean, you just look at that back row alone. I mean, it's a sensational uh, back row. And they just worked so well together and they were good at uh, their link play. They didn't rotate too much. They got 
their combos that worked and they kind of stuck with them. And did you ever feel as though it was about shutting down individuals or, or was it was it more than that? Was it about England playing a game that suppressed the whole of the Irish team? Uh, yeah, the whole team really we did it as. I mean, there are games previously where you might focus on certain players. Um, in particular, you know, if you if you saw say a distributor that you could put under pressure that you might then they might not get the ball out things like that but with Ireland no they were such a good team uh, I think it was a case of right we all need to step it up and then we put pressure onto them as a team but no there was no individuals in that that we targeted let's have a look at the uh, the England team I'll read it out again 15 and fullback Daniel Waterman uh, yourself wearing number 14 Emily Scarrett and Rachel Burford in the centre Kay Wilson on the other wing Halfbacks Latoya Mason and, and Katie McLean, captain of the side, wearing 10. Uh, front row of uh, Rocky Clark, Vicky Fleetwood, and Sophie Hemming, uh, wearing four, Tamara Taylor, five, Joe McGilchrist. Uh, and the back row, Alex Matthews, wearing six, Maggie Alfonsi, wearing seven, and Sarah Hunter, wearing eight. Gary Street, the uh, head coach, had made a couple of changes. Latoya Mason was brought in at, uh, at scrum half, Alex Matthews on the blind side. Was that a little bit of because of the, the sort of threats or the sort of way that you wanted to play against Ireland? Yeah, and I think um, it would be, I mean, Alex Matthews is such a workhorse. And I think her coming in against the, you know, the Irish back row, who were also workhorses, would do a lot of the groundwork in there. Uh, Latoya Mason, just very experienced uh, very focused and then actually when you bring Natasha Hunt off the bench she raises the tempo um, so I think possibly a tactical um, thing in there as well and uh, yeah so there, I mean the basis of, of that squad is ones that have played together a lot I mean especially if you look in those backs from 10 to 15 that was pretty much what um, what was we were used to playing together but I just it's really nice looking at that team because I'm like, oh wow, so many like legends of the game in there. Like it's cool, it's nice to go back sometimes and look. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is what it's all about. Uh, can you remember what the game plan was? Do you remember your sort of mission? I imagine I think put pressure on them, definitely. But I think the main thing was just improving from that Canada game, just because we were, yeah, just not very good against <laughs> Canada. So <laughs> I play better than that. Um, yeah, and I think just focusing back on us. And I think putting the emphasis on us and improving was the main thing. But no, specific game plan, I can't really remember. Let's go to YouTube. Let's have a look at these highlights. These are the World Rugby highlights. Uh, they total five minutes. We may stop and start them a little bit, uh, but I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to press play now. Um, what, are your, um, what are your thoughts in these moments? We see you're, you're in frame here, walking out. What are your thoughts as you walk out just before kickoff, what, what do you, what are you trying to fill your mind with? Uh, just focus. Like, so that's because I'm, uh, I think I only ever have that face <laughs> like when I'm running out uh, or walking out to play, but yeah, just keeping really focused, really calm, not letting the occasion get to you. That's the key thing. Emotions aren't now coming into it. It's I'm here for a job. I need, we need to beat this team. Um, and that's kind of what you're looking at and um, just thinking about the small things. And what I used to do personally when I turn up to a game, I'd go, it's just, it's just a game of rugby. You've played one before, you play one again. And just think of it as a game of rugby and as basic as that is what I used to try and do. Did you ever get anything from the national anthem? Was that a, a chance to build yourself up a little bit? Yeah, I loved the national anthem. I loved it uh, because it was just you with your teammates and you're looking and 
you just often spot people in the crowd that have come to support you, you know, it might be your parents or it might be friends or like I had um, stags who I coach, a load of them had come across to watch and you'll see one of them, you know, and that kind of lifts you as well because they're going through this journey with you. And yeah, the anthem actually go into a retirement, retirement side of things. I cried the first time I heard the anthem and wasn't singing it just because it just was, it's such a special moment and it just makes your hair stand on end, singing it with your teammates. It's, yeah, it's something quite special. I've stopped the clip, but I'll restart it around about the, the 103 point. Um, quite a cagey start, both teams sort of feeling each other out and we see Ireland open the scoring here with a, with a driving maul. Talk us through your thoughts. I think we just weren't, um, we didn't, we didn't let it affect us. We're like, okay, they scored and, uh, it goes to um, BMO as well. They weren't sure they scored it. It was very stop-starty and kind of, it was like, as soon as we realised they had scored, we were like, right, back up and they don't they don't score again. They're not crossing our line. They're not, they're not coming into our half and we're not going to, and I think specifically for the forwards as well, because we were known so well for our driven ball to have Ireland do it to them. I think they really were then like, okay, this is going to be a battle. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's going to be a battle. Yeah, you struck straight back. Dear old Rocky Clark underneath all those those bodies. Yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, she goes straight over, which is which is brilliant. Like because it was just, it was a case of right, okay, we're back in this and we're going to bully you. And I think that was the kind of important part of it that how physical it was going to be. They're going to restart it at, at two minutes and and four seconds. And actually, this this scrum where this break. Uh, begins and indeed where where you end up scoring came from a mistake Ireland had kicked it long if you remember and and it came all the way back to to, to give you a platform yeah talk us through what you can see here the the initial uh the initial break from from your center yeah so Emily Scarrett gets the ball there's um the wing has gone too wide and she just pins her ears back and goes here such a brilliant run handing off footwork kind of thought she's going to go the whole way and then um Briggs just managed to tackle a try-saving tackle. And then uh, I just know that we're close to the line. And I, I remember being out on the wing going, there's a massive overlap here. There's a huge overlap if we get this out. And uh, we carry, we punch it to our um, forwards first and we give it to Maggie, which uh, ties them in even more. You can see Ireland panicking, kind of scrambling around to try and get there. And again, I was like, I've got a one-on-one here if, if I get the ball. And the ball slightly behind birth, slightly behind Nolly, and it's kind of a messy path out. And then I just know this is my moment. Hand off, score in the corner. It's what I'm made to do. It's what I do. And uh, yeah, I've got it. Uh, saw Miller coming at me and I was like, I've got her. I just knew I've got her. I can hand her off here because she's the only thing in my way of scoring uh, in the semi-final for England. So yeah, so... I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to rewind it a little bit because I, I just I just want to talk to you and ask you a question about how much shouting you were doing. You mentioned there about wanting the ball, but I don't know if if people can see. They watch the clip again. You are physically shaking with the amount of exertion that you're putting into screaming to try and get the ball. Oh yeah, I would have been. I'd have probably been screaming right from now from this first one. And then uh, you can see you can see you yeah, starting. Right. Give me the ball! Just give me the ball! <laughs> I think I'm so excited. Well, like, just give me the ball! I have got this. And then uh, yeah, so yeah, I was screaming a lot, but uh, they heard, they listened, I got it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and 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 sort of that that gave you the little bit of drive, that little bit of impetus, and we and we see your uh, your counterpart on the other wing. This is a good finish from 
from young uh, Kay, uh, is it, yeah, Kay Wilson. Oh, it's a great finish from Kay. Kay is one of those, you know, she's a finisher and she's got so much pace, but then her body control here to lift her legs up so she's not going to go into touch, but to make sure she grounds the ball. I mean, um, yeah, Kay, and, and just one of the most loveliest people as well that you'll meet. And it's just for her to finish it off that other side as well was just, was great to see as well. But yeah, I would say I'm finisher, pure gas, great, uh, great player. Let's talk about that technically. Do you do you practice finish? Is are there are there drills where sort of wingers are taken off, fullbacks are taken off to practice doing that, getting the ball down and, and trying to sort of keep your feet in the air? Is that something you practice in, in, in training? No, we didn't, but it's something now that I think they do. I think um, now that a lot of tries get scored more out there, I think that you look at coaching practices and it, it happens a lot more. But no, I always used to think this. I was like, you play like team runs and you do things like that but you never actually do like live kind of finishing um you know just even the skill of having the ball in one hand diving out to put it down as you're being knocked off balance and yeah about your feet coming up and just things like that and I think yeah there's a lot more of it now but no I don't think I I ever did a finishing kind of uh, like finishing is in footwork to beat people one-on-one but not the actual getting that ball over the line kind of in, in that kind of fashion but yeah I think there's a lot more things like that now Let's talk handoffs, Kat, because, I mean, it happened there and, and we can watch it again. There's an element of strength to it, but there's also an element of technique. Talk, talk us through the, the, the technique around this handoff here to put you in for this try. So the main thing is trying to get uh, the defender off balance. So that particular one there, I didn't have to do it too much. and I think the camera angle doesn't quite show it. But So you'll take them to one side kind of to... Uh, make them overstretched and you just do a little step in so they'll turn their hips and then when they're off balance that's when you go um, to push so you are normally trying to go for a shoulder so you're pushing the shoulder that they're wanting to tackle you with away from you and then you use their body weight to accelerate you forward so you're almost not trying to push them away you're trying to push yourself away um, so it's kind of that part but yeah it's getting them off balance first off and then uh, you can see here that, yeah, I go for the shoulder she's trying to tackle, and then she tries to kind of grapple onto my arm, but then I can still uh, get round her. And is it face, solar plexus? Where, does it matter as long as you get a good purchase on her? Um, yeah, so generally I would say shoulder, because uh, if you go too front on, then it means that they could get their body weight behind it, whereas you want to get away from their body weight. You can do face ones. Um, I've definitely done a few face ones in my time. Um, they're quite uh, fun to do. But yeah, I actually think that kind of shoulder burn is kind of almost the best one because then you twist them away from you. So if you've already got them off balance and their hips are slightly turned, then you get them, whilst they're off balance, onto that shoulder, you can kind of really accelerate away from them too. Was it something that you were always good at, or, or was it something that, that gets better the more you develop it? Um, the handoff, I just always... I had actually it was my footwork that got better so as my footwork improved then it meant the handoff was even more effective but yeah I think from an early age I was one of those players that would just go fall under one hand and <laughs> kind of uh, just enjoyed that part of it but it's such an underused skill sometimes in the game because I'm always when I'm when I'm coaching I'm quite hot on it when wingers have the ball in the wrong hand so running down the wing with the ball on the inside and it's something in commentary and all the stuff or coaching, I'm just, it really gets, uh, it gets me. Because so I'm like, just transfer, get that hand out. Because you might not need to use it, you might gas them. But if they do get you, it's just an extra tool to get them, uh, bat them away from you. 
I've stopped the tape and, and we'll restart it in a moment. But I just want to focus on on one particular player. I mean, arguably, 2014 was the year of Emily Scarrett. Can I can I talk to you about how you might go about tackling Emily? Because Ireland certainly couldn't do in that break. You would have faced her at club rugby to a certain extent. Yeah. How how do you how do you bring her down? Because she seems such a long and languid runner. Yeah. Well, she's so tall, but also. Um like a strong runner as well and the pace that she hits on the ball so you just kind of have to like playing her at club when Worcester used to play Litchfield you just have to try and go low at least get one of her legs to kind of slow her down and then try and grab the other one uh, but I think sometimes players make the mistake of going far too high on her and then obviously her legs are going and they just can't get it but yeah you've just got to kind of be brave go low and just try and just chop and kind of get her but yeah such a difficult player to tackle yeah. I'm going to press play again on the on the clock and we'll run this through to the end because this is a, a couple of really good opportunist strikes for, from England and, and you started to sort of just pull away and, and started to show the class which eventually would take you through to the title. Yeah, and uh, I think that's it, the, the dominance that then we were like, we have got this, we can do this and you can see like the confidence to put kicks through uh, in there like it, it's brilliant and um, everybody just switched on and going for it that was Molly Packer wasn't it it was on it was yeah, yeah. yeah she's got the two. and that's you know she's somebody that all just works so hard non-stop and like great for her to get it to it was a really convincing win how, how did it set you up for the for the final and that's perhaps an, an attached question did you go out and celebrate or, or were you quite quickly focused on, on on what you had to do in a few days time no no celebrations at all um, we like, I mean, obviously on the pitch here, we're, we're buzzing because we're going to a final and we're all hugging each other. But no, there was no no night out or anything like that. And I think actually, I mean, the turnaround was less than a week to, to go and play it again, or it, it was a week, so it's not a lot of um, prep time. So I think that evening you probably go back. It sounds quite boring. You'll have your ice baths, you'll recover, you'll kind of talk through the game, you'll do a bit of analysis on it, uh, and watch it the next day. But then it's just next job. And it was very much geared towards, um, yeah, the next next job, World Cup final, and that feeling of this is our time, this is our moment. Because if you look back to 2010, and because actually in the 2010 uh, World Cup, I didn't play in the semi-final. Um, so I've never had that experience feeling personally of being winning the game, so then it gets you through. And, um, yeah, I just think it was a... We can do this. We've got this. It's our time. An incredible final too. I mean, the rules of this podcast suggest we, we can't say too much about it. But you, I, I think we can say you, you outthought, outpowered, outclassed a very good Canada side. And the World Cup was finally England's. Yeah. Talk us through your thoughts and your feelings then. Um, so actually, I probably didn't enjoy a single minute of the World Cup final. Uh, it was bizarre to say, you imagine, because for years you're like, imagine it's the World Cup final, it's the last thing of it. You're just stressed the entire time. It's just so high uh, stress levels and you don't really enjoy it. But I remember the final whistle going and just being, just the first feeling, the genuine first feeling is relief because it's the relief of the fact that I haven't got another four years of thinking, oh, what if I'd have done this differently? What if we'd have done this differently? And waking up every day just being like, we didn't do it. And so you're suddenly like, actually, and, and then you get the then you get the joy afterwards. But the initial one, which a lot of the girls have since spoken about as well, and they think the same, huge wave of relief. And then um, I think just, 
yeah, joy. And then just like for me personally as well, because uh, I retired after that game, it was a feeling of sadness as well because um, I only focused on one game at a time and I'd never thought about it and what was happening afterwards because if I'd have thought this is my final game of rugby, I would not have played how I'd have played. I'd have played differently or I'd have been playing in a, you know, in a different mindset. So I just kind of put it aside and pretended it wasn't happening. But then afterwards I was like, oh, I'm never going to do this again. And uh, like, you know, just looking up, there's a fantastic photo that someone's caught of me and you can just see every single one of those emotions in my face. You can just see a real mixture of this emotion. And, uh, but it was great. And I'm just crying. I think I, I rarely, I rarely cry, but I'm just crying joy, <laughs> relief, and like, sadness, like just all of it wrapped into one. And, and just the work rate that the, you know, you said about nine, nine years playing at that level, you know, uh, my fourth World Cup, two sevens, two fifteens, to finally have achieved it, you're just like, oh, Yes, everything that I've put in has been worth it. Every early session, every sacrifice that you haven't gone to someone's wedding, you've done all the things you've kind of given up at that point because it was only ever semi-pro um, uh, when it was. And uh, so there is a lot you give up and it just is all worth it. And then you just look immediately for your family. You look immediately for them in the crowds because they, they they're all part of it. And then, yeah, those are the kind of hard to describe, I think. You mentioned retirement there. Um, you announced it formally in September, but from what you've just said, it, it sounded like it was it was already in place. It was already on your mind. Yeah, so I'd had um, some bad concussions uh, whether, uh, just before the World Cup. Uh, it took me four months to, um, to recover from it, and they were just getting progressively worse. And, you know, before the World Cup, someone, had said, a neurologist I saw was like, maybe you should consider retiring. I was like, this is year before the World Cup, I'm not retiring. And, um, but then in the back of my mind, I was kind of like, okay, it's probably, because I'd signed a sevens uh, contract. So I'd signed the, I was in the 17, the initial 17 that were going pro. And I'd said about what should I do? Because I'm not sure. And I've been getting advice that says I should probably retire. And they were like, well, let's take the stress out of it, sign it. And then if it's not, you know, if you can't fulfill it, you can't fulfill it. But then you've got the option if you want to. Rather, they were like, we don't want you stressing before a World Cup. Can you do the sevens? They were like, don't worry about that. So that was really good because it meant that literally signed, gave it away, did not think about it. Because you just can't. Like, if you think of the magnitude if I'm going, but I won't be able to play professional sevens. I won't be able to use that. I just had to go. And I think I've been putting it back on my mind so well and playing that it was only when we'd finished, I was like, oh God, like, yeah. And because I'd picked up a small concussion in the Samoa game, first pool game in the World Cup. Someone brushed past me and I just felt dizzy. And I was like, there's no way I can play professional rugby if, they, if I start getting concussions from really small things. So, because um, I think by that point, it was like my 11th or 12th or, or something like that. And there's no number set on how many is too many. But, you know, I think knowing that we've won a World Cup as well, it's like, it's enough. It's not, I've got nothing more to gain, really. Yes, it would have been cool to go and play in the sevens. It would have been amazing to have a shot at Olympics. But you sort of have to, as well, look to your future. And I spoke to a few specialists and sports doctors and the neurologist again. And, uh, yeah, all the advice was pretty much probably best to, to um, hang your boots up. And... Uh, and I, yeah, I agreed with it, having gone through what I went through with the recoveries. Uh, so, but so a fantastic moment and one I will remember forever. But yeah, just slightly with the, and it was the same for some of the girls who knew they were retiring beforehand. 
you know, uh, Maggie, uh, Sophie Hemming, like girls like that, and I'm sure they would have had similar feelings because it wasn't injury for them necessarily, but, you know, the fact that you're hanging up your boots, there's always, you know, a sadness attached to it. But, um, but no, all, all positive, and I just think that, yeah, these things happen unless that is kind of fine. I'm not bitter about any of how it went, but, um, yeah, I'm just so pleased that I got to experience that win with my team. It's never easy, though, that transition, is it? I mean, physically, you talk about the fact that you, you were talking to, to, to medical professionals about the fact that, that physically you probably could reason with the idea of not playing but mentally there still must have been something that was beating inside of you quite strong oh so difficult I didn't realize how difficult it would be yeah so the first year, uh, first match I remember it was England Wales and uh, I went down to Wales to watch and they sang the anthem and I just burst out crying I just was like I'm never gonna sing the anthem again and it's just things like that that you just it's heartbreaking and you don't realize how heartbreaking it's going to be and I never realized how hard that first season uh, would be not playing. But then uh, the year after I got involved in some commentary and some pundit work and things like that, that made it easier because you're still there on your own rights. Whereas you just suddenly feel like, you know, you've been in this bubble with a World Cup team, we've won, we're this, and then the next year you're buying a ticket to go and watch. And it just feels so strange that you're like, oh, I used to be in that and now I'm not. And uh, yeah, very hard, very hard. And I think a lot of retired athletes feel that same kind of loss because it's a loss of identity. You're like, I'm cat, I'm the rugby player. When I wake up early in the morning to train, it's because I play rugby. And then suddenly you've not got that goal that you're working towards. So what you do? And you've got to find your new goals and you've got to put your energy into something else because it is that, it's, a, it's your energy that you've got so much of to give to something. It's just finding what works for you. And you found that. I mean, it looks as way. You know, from from a from a, a social media perspective, certainly it, it looks as though you've you found those drivers in your life to sort of replace what rugby gave you a little bit. Yeah, so coaching, um, tried a bit of refereeing, but wasn't really for me. Uh, I prefer the coaching side of it. Um, but uh, yeah, just my personal training, and um, I really developed the boot camps, which I love because it's like working people hard, and I love. I think because I'm very driven myself. I love being able to put that into other people. Um, so I've got a client at the minute who's uh, 56. She's lost over 30 kilos. She's, uh, she did this running interval session the other day and she, so she told me at the start, I don't run, I can't run. And I was like, we'll see. And yeah, and the other day she sent me a video uh, doing a headstand and she was just like, I can do this now. And it's so nice. And it genuinely fills me with like so much pride for that person. They're so happy they can do something I've helped them get there and uh you know same with coaching uh it's nice to experience it with the team because you know when they win you feel if you're invested and they are when they win you feel the wins when they lose you feel the losses uh and that's something I didn't uh, want to lose you know I didn't want to just be impartial you know I wanted to feel it with them and go through it but um yeah so I love coaching you get that kind of you get the banter, for want of a better word, that you get with your teammates. And you can get that as a coach as well, which is the thing that you probably miss the most. Because I miss playing, and I still miss playing, because it's nice to feel you have your part in something. So I spoke about, oh, the scoring, and that's my job, and I help the team. Because in individual sport, I don't think I'd have ever been as driven at. Weirdly, I like to do things as part of a team. And... Um, 
So when you lose that, you just can't. So in that sense, I miss playing, uh, being being able to do something that you're meant to do. Uh, but then, yeah, it's actually just a teammate stuff. Because I don't remember, like, a lot of my memories from club, it's all funny things about when the ground's frozen so much and you're playing on it and we're all moaning, but it's, like, it's those moments or there was a trial game we did in the snow and just, it's all funny things or, like, my mate falling over or, like, just just stupid things that you remember and you miss those and you miss the group, so... It's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. I'm going to ask you one final question and it's really about what you think now. You've been retired a fair amount of time. You've been had a chance to, to think about your career what was it that rugby gave you that you think you wouldn't have got in, in a different sphere, in a different career? What, what was the gift that rugby gave you? A uh, gift of rugby was definitely uh, friendships um, that I've got now. You know, I was Lydia's bridesmaid uh, wedding, uh, you know, and I'm friends with Sarah Guest, who's a, who I saw when I was under 16. first girl I came across, uh, chatted to her, we were friends we're still friends now uh and uh so that's a key thing just because I think it's unlike other friendships as well because you've gone through a lot together you physically put your bodies on the line for each other and you just feel like you could not see someone for ages and you see them and you know what you've gone through and kind of so so that definitely uh confidence as well um it gives you obviously a good confidence when your teammates back you and uh or you're good at something and actually the thing I love most about rugby is there is a position for everyone uh you know if you're the big kid at school that isn't getting picked for netball actually go play rugby bowl some girls over who feel great uh or you know the little ones typically uh you know go in at scrum half um might have a hype for netball. Um, I only use netball as an example, just because, you know, a lot of girls play it in school. But yeah, it's just, it is a great sport. And I love that you've got the kind of, you've got the forwards, you've got the backs, and it's a really nice mix. And then you can play sevens as well. And uh, it's just, I just think that rugby as a sport has so much to offer. And yeah, I'm just hugely grateful for kind of my part uh, in it. And uh, I love coaching now and kind of giving back kind of hopefully some of those things that I gained from it. Well, it's been brilliant talking to you. You've been really honest uh, and you've, you've allowed us into your world and it's been absolutely fantastic. And I know there's lots of young players who will be listening to this and there'll be lots of young girls thinking about it and listening to you and, and wanting perhaps to uh, follow in your footsteps. And uh, Cat Merchant, thank you so much for giving us your one game at a time. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me.